These podcasts are addicting. I highly doubt this is the only podcast you listen to if you listen to this podcast. There's just way too many already today. I've listened to Mark Marin interview Jay Leno, listened to Theo Vaughn. Uh, my goal is to not listen to so much Theo Vaughn that I start talking like him. That is my concern because he's so damn funny. Can't stop. I have to embrace the silences in life. Even if I'm taking out the garbage, that's like, well, 30 seconds to listen to a podcast. On the toilet, in the shower, when you drive, on a dog walk, all the little moments in life I'm now starting to fill with too much podcast action. It's getting dangerous, folks. It's getting dangerous. But of course, I appreciate you tuning in. Episode 28, here we go. We got some heavy stuff to get into. So I don't know what kind of mood you're in right now, but it will get heavy. I'm going to flood your brain with some things that I've come across, some facts, some information. I got to really enunciate facts, facts, so it doesn't sound like some facts. Yeah, I got a fax this morning coming in hot off the fax machine. Want to share that with you. Know some facts about anxiety, about stress, things that we all experience, things that we all have felt. Where does it come from? I looked it up. And I realized there's a new activity that we all do. I don't think it's just me. Uh, we Google things that we want to hear just to reconfirm what we were hoping to find out. You know, there's Googling to find out something. And then there's Googling with a direct question that should align with how you previously felt or wanted to feel about something. I think I do it four or five times a day. If you looked at my Google search history, it's basically just things I'm already doing or things that are already connected to my life, or a part of my life, and just hoping that it's healthy for me. So in the morning, I just will Google health benefits of oatmeal. And I'm going, this seems healthy, but why? And then I get all the nutrition facts. Or is it okay to drink wine when you're sick? Or advantages of owning a smelly old dog. And there's endless blogs and articles out there. There's so many websites, you know, some credible, many not credible that will have the answer of what you're looking for, no matter what you're looking for. I'm cooking with green olives last night, so I just Google health benefits of green olives just to make me feel better about myself. Health benefits of scrambled eggs. Anything I eat, I just write health benefits of, even if it's bad for you. Someone has written a blog, you know, that says, hey, reverse how you feel about French fries. Health benefits of French fries. They release endorphins, and they're high in this amino acid and this probiotic and all these things that I don't really know what they mean. But I go, yeah, at least that's going on in my body right now. Googling what you want to hear is good for your mood. I've realized that. You can find anything. Should my baby be fill in the blank? When should my baby be fill in the blank? Is it okay if my baby fill in the blank? And as you sift and sift and sift through the message boards and the bullshit websites, you're going to find what you're looking for. It's a good feeling. But don't get me wrong. I do look for credibility. I do look for dependable journalists and reporters when it comes to the big things, big things like stress and anxiety. So this week alone, two days ago, I just Googled up, why do humans experience anxiety? Because we all do. I think it was one of those days. I don't know. Anxiety kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, the spurts of it could have been a family issue or something. I don't know. But I was just feeling it. You know, it kind of makes you anxious. You're not really able to focus. It feels like it consumes you for a little bit. Not a full-blown panic attack. That's something different. But just, you know, a little spike in your anxiety levels. So I'm wondering, what is actually going on in me scientifically? What happens to humans? 
the first time I even heard about anxiety, I was in college in an apartment complex. We had a neighbor who became a friend and she and I went out to get some Hawaiian barbecue. And on the drive, she looked at me and she said, just so you know, I have pretty severe anxiety. That was the first time I heard somebody use that word as like a medical condition talking about mental health. And I said, okay, yeah. And I thought, what is she scared of things? Not exactly. Doesn't exactly mean you're scared of things. If that's how you immediately define the word anxiety. And she was like, no, I do have panic attacks. I'm medicated, you know, just happy to tell me all about that. I thought it was interesting. I had not heard about it growing up that some people need prescribed medication for anxiety. So at least I knew about it. And some people experience small amounts and other people experience high amounts, giant amounts to the point where they need a pill here and there. So anytime you meet somebody that goes, yeah, I don't feel anxiety ever. You say, then you're not human. Or maybe they found a pretty good way to mask it, which is actually impressive. But here's what I came across. So I just Googled it up. Why do people experience anxiety? This guy, James Clear, wrote an article. I don't know anything about him except for the fact that he wrote an article. However, it was one of the most interesting articles I've ever read. So let me give you the gist. He basically says our brains today in their current form are traced back to the same structural brains of the early Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago. But 200,000 years ago, people lived in a world of immediate return. They lived in an environment of immediate return. If you're hungry, you go and eat something from nature. If a storm comes through, you're going to take shelter under the brush. When you spot a lion coming at you, you run. Okay, so all of those things, the remedy is right there. You don't experience the long chronic stress. But we currently live in a delayed return environment. Most of the choices we make today don't benefit us immediately. As in you work and work and work and then you get a paycheck and then you're saving up for a house or saving up for a retirement. Or you study, study, study in hopes that you'll get into the college of your dreams so you can live in a delayed return environment. That's what this guy says. It puts you in a state of chronic stress and anxiety. Why? Because of all the things we've added to society. We've evolved from 200,000 years ago, all the things that we were able to remedy so quickly and not have chronic stress. There was still anxiety back then, but it didn't linger like it does today. Well, in the last 200 years, think about all the inventions. Think about how we've industrialized and urbanized and how the systematic way we live when it comes to our entertainment, our pop culture, higher education, how we consume news, what has been the impact of radio, TV, internet. You know, we all think that these are great technological innovations and inventions, but think about what they've done to our brains. The modern human brain spent hundreds of thousands of years evolving for one type of environment, immediacy. Yet, we don't live in that world anymore, so it's a mismatch. If that makes any sense, our current brains were not intended for this style of living where we just have worry after worry. Think of your last big worry. You probably couldn't remedy it in that moment. You had to wait on something. So anxiety has evolved and evolved to the point where everybody experiences it and it lasts longer than it should. And then this guy, James Clear, he writes, so here's what you could do about it. Live in the moment as if it's that easy. But at least he says, you know, there's a strategy called the paperclip strategy, and he talks about it. Shift your worries. Instead of worrying about living longer, focus on taking a walk. Instead of worrying about whether your child will get to college on a scholarship, focus how much time they spend studying today. Instead of worrying about losing weight for an upcoming wedding, just focus on cooking a healthy dinner tonight. So take care of things one by one. 
Don't let that daunting task consume you. Interesting. Interesting to think going back 200,000 years ago, the way the human brain was able to relieve that anxiety where it wasn't an issue. Those early Homo sapiens, they didn't have that issue. They weren't going in for a diagnosis to find out that they need a pill or they need more mindful meditation because there was quick resolution. Now, do I desire that? Of course not. I have to embrace the society we're in, but at least it's good to know and be aware of why our brains have this, why we get stressed out. Everybody experiences stress probably three to four times a day, even the most relaxed, chill individuals. They don't reveal it. Maybe they don't want to express it, but everybody. Guess what else I Googled? Proof of an afterlife. I was having one of those days. Maybe that was creating some of the anxiety that I was thinking about death. Thinking about death. Woo, boy. Nothing more morbid. Nothing. So I'm trying to commit to an idea of an afterlife. I'm trying to rewire my brain to say, yeah, that's not the end. At the end of life, that's not the end. You're not just a lifeless collection of bones rotting in a coffin as worms are going in and out of your body pushing up plants. Hey, that sounds real cheery. Did I get you down with that? All right, I'll get you back up. So I just Google it. This is the type of Googling I do. Google what you want to hear. Google something to reconfirm where you're going with your thoughts. That is the classic find your own narrative. But if it fits, it fits. Feels good, feels good. That's what we're looking for. And immediately I find all these articles. But one of them was like a doctor who was able to prove there's something. There's something after we die. Because a lot of doctors have seen people die right there on the bed in a hospital yet come back to life. You know, pronounced dead. <gasps> They're back to life. We've all heard about these stories, these miracles. Well, he was pronounced dead for two minutes and then he came back. Well, these people that come back, they're able to describe what happened. So they're calling these afterlife experiences a little bit of proof that there's something after we die. Now, atheists, you can listen to this and say, bullshit. And agnostics, you could listen to this and say, not buying it. I don't care what religion you are. Isn't it comforting to think that there's something after the finish line? That dead end we all picture? Isn't that kind of nice on the brain to think maybe there's some utopia world? Picture it the way you want to picture it. How do people picture heaven? Basically how movies have shown us heaven, right? Bouncing on clouds in our human form. How do people picture hell? Deep in the dark depths of some dungeonous cave with a lot of fire and a big old devil. It gets a little sweaty down there. Why do we view it this way? Why do we picture it this way? Because we've been taught that. There's no proof of any of that. To get comfortable with something that has zero proof is tough. I guess that's called faith. That word faith pops up. Do I have faith now that there's an afterlife? Yeah, I'll, I'll say yeah. Sure. Sounds good. At least that'll get me to my next thought. All right, here's one of the ways you can measure if you're growing up. Not the only way. There's a lot of ways. But here's one good way to measure if you're growing up a little bit. Go back and watch a movie that you really enjoyed when you were about 19, 20 years old. Yeah, 20 years old, in college. Last weekend, my wife and I watched Blow with Johnny Depp, the true story of George Young, the cocaine dealer, the infamous cocaine dealer, who they say provided at least 80, maybe 85% of the cocaine in America back in the 80s. It all is traced back to one man named George Young, J-U-N-G, if you want to Google, or most of you know because you've seen the movie Blow. 
Well, when I saw it and I was 20 years old in the theater, I left thinking, wow, now that is a thrill seeker. That is an adventurous man. And he's played by good looking Johnny Depp. And Johnny Depp's love interest in the movie is Penelope Cruz. And isn't that a hot looking couple? partying hard with lots and lots of money. And then, oh yeah, the last four minutes of the movie, they dedicate to the fact that he goes to prison, has no relationship with his daughter or ex-wife, has mental issues during his incarceration. But that's just the last chunk of the movie. A 20-year-old watches a two-hour movie, and they're going to remember the first hour and 40 minutes of watching this guy flying his planes, doing his drugs, partying with his bigwig friends, marrying beautiful Penelope Cruz. And I realized now, 36 years old, 16 years later, I go, oh, what a bad dad. Oh, what a filthy scumbag. What a bastard. And I just hate George Young now. Even though Johnny Depp is still Johnny Depp throughout the movie, making everything look cool, you almost forget that he's just a criminal. He's bringing all this coke into the States and Hollywood makes it look like glamour and glitz. It's a dazzling movie. It's very interesting. You're not sure how much of it is true, just like any biopic or something based on a true story based loosely, maybe, but we got to make some money at the box office. We got to sell some tickets. However, if you go to any college dorm room or apartment of college kids, they'll have posters of Johnny Depp in blow, or they'll have posters of Al Pacino in Scarface. Tony Montana, yet another coke dealer. But he rises up. He gets the pretty lady, Michelle Pfeiffer. College kids love Tony Montana. The rap hip-hop culture loves Tony Montana. A Cuban refugee who makes millions upon millions. And he tackles the town. And he's got a big old mansion and a lot of guns. And big parties. And he loves to dance at the club. And yeah, it comes crumbling down, but even his death at the end, Hollywood manages to make really cool, make it look really cool to a 20-year-old. That's when I saw Scarface, even though it came out in 1983. I saw it probably around the same time I saw Blow, when I was 20. Hollywood loves drug dealers, don't they? Even American Made, it was really good. Tom Cruise bringing drugs into the States, dealing with the Colombians, Pablo Escobar. There's plenty of teenagers that couldn't tell you anything about American history, but they could tell you about Pablo Escobar. They could tell you about the amount of kilos coming in, thanks to George Young. If I was to watch Scarface now, I would say, oh, too violent. Actually, maybe I'm not that stiff and prude when I watch these movies. It's still entertainment, I get that. But you have a different relationship with the movie. I guess that's what parenthood does to you. You start to wonder, well, are they at least home to cook dinner for their kids? Are they at least helping them with homework before they fly the plane back to Peru for another shipment? But it's all glorified. It's all glorified. Coke dealers. There's more Al Pacino Scarface posters on college dorm rooms than anything. And a lot of Bob Marley. And a lot of Pink Floyd. And a lot of Jim Morrison. And a lot of Muhammad Ali trying to just picture what college dorm rooms used to look like. Maybe a lava lamp, maybe not. A lot of street signs. That was cool. Just any street sign, stop sign. Boulevard, road, cul-de-sac, or sack. George Young is still alive, though. I want you to know that. Has no relationship with his daughter. Does he deserve one? Fuck no. 
I mean, I, I understand forgiveness. I love forgiveness. But the amount of times he just goes back to the drug-dealing world, breaking Ray Liotta's heart. Ray Liotta, one of the greatest actors ever. I forgot how good he was playing his dad. So go see Blow. See if you have a new relationship with it. Go see any movie that you loved when you were 20 years old. Go watch Swingers again. And you'll probably say, well, these guys are a little cheesy. These guys are a little sleazy and smarmy. Or maybe it's still good. Young Vince Vaughn with those sideburns. God, 90s fashion. So ugly. It's funny how we look at pictures of the 60s and that fashion looks cool. You look at pictures even of the 50s, the roaring 20s, it all looks cool. The 70s, disco, 80s, a lot of that stuff is back. But the 90s still looks awful. It irks me watching anything from the 90s. It doesn't look good again yet. I mean, it will at some point because all fashion is cyclical. But the guys with the frosted bleach tips, the puka shell necklace, the baggy cargo shorts and baggy cargo pants... The dragon print button-up bowling shirt, the lugs boots, the Timberland boots, and the sideburns. This is truly ugly, what I'm describing. If this ever comes back in my lifetime, how weird would that be if by the time my daughter's in high school, the 90s look is back? Because right now, you see the 80s looks coming back. Those low-top Vans checkered shoes, those are back. Girls dyeing their hair like Cindy Lauper, that is back. High-waisted jeans, that is back. You know what look is weird that I see as a high school teacher? Uh, kids who do high white socks with boat shoes, Sperry's. I don't get it. I mean, a lot of kids, not just kids that belong to one clique or another clique. You see the high white socks and boat shoes a lot. I don't get it, but I'm not supposed to get it. I'm now the old guy who studies them like they're an exhibit at a museum. Oh, okay, these are teens. Now I see. And they probably will not have Scarface and Blow posters up in their dorms. I don't have a clue how college dorms look nowadays, but probably inspired by criminals and convicts and drug dealers that Hollywood has glorified in their movies by casting really good-looking actors who have a lot of swagger and bravado to play those roles. Isn't that what we're doing? I mean, really. When's the last time Hollywood just casted some rugged-looking ugly dude to play a drug dealer? No, it is the Johnny Depp's. They are getting those roles, the Tom Cruises of the world. I'm becoming very proper, apparently. Or I guess I need my Hollywood stories to be so moral, to be so ethical. What has happened to me? I'm going to have a meltdown in the mirror after this. What's happened to you? You used to be cool. Now you're just an old bag of bones, Googling anxiety and stress and thinking about death. Ugh. All right, there's another word to Google. Ready for another word to Google? This is one of the coolest words, most fascinating words. Visceral. Visceral. Relating to deep inward feelings rather than to the intellect. So a visceral reaction. The most honest and pure of all reactions. That is fascinating. Laughter. You can never really choose to laugh. Something has to make you laugh. Tears. I don't care if you're an actor and you're fake laughing or fake crying, but when you actually cry, visceral response to things. If you see something that's so gross, it actually makes you nauseous. Dealing with coarse or base primal emotions within us. Proceeding from instinct rather than intellect. I'm just giving you all the definitions, but we've heard that word visceral. Oh, I had a visceral response. When you're at a restaurant and you take a bite of something so delicious, you go, mmm. You can't help 
but go, mmm, that's my wife and I. Go to restaurants, and it's just the loudest table. Mmm. Mmm. There's a reason they call it food porn, folks. It makes you go, mmm. Visceral responses, in my opinion, are the greatest that we can possibly have. Makes you realize how many fake responses you see out there. The world is filled with fake laughter and maybe even fake tears as well. But when you really see a laugh, somebody having a laugh, or you know the difference yourself. When you have like a little chuckle, you know, you give someone the courtesy laugh versus that feeling that overtakes your body, that euphoric feeling of having a true laugh. That's a visceral response to something. Or getting the chills. Watching Black Mirror, you get the chills. You have to cover your eyes. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe you'll keep your eyes open. That feeling we say, my blood's boiling. The visceral response. I love that word. So welcome to my life. I guess I just Google words all day. Here's a little did you know. Did you know there's a Chiefs offensive lineman by the name of Laurent Duvarnay Tardif? Did you know that? From Quebec, French Canada. You know this guy? Laurent Duvarnay Tardif? Chiefs offensive lineman? He's asking the league if he can put MD on his jersey this year. After Duvarnay Tardif. He wants MD. You want to know why? He's a doctor. This is the most interesting story I've come across in the offseason, as I am starting to get excited for NFL. Now Hard Knocks starts tonight. Here we go. Follow the Cleveland Browns as they go back into the toilet and get flushed away for the 90th straight year. But Chiefs star guard Laurent Duvarnay Tardif for the last seven years has, oh yeah, been working towards his medical degree and playing in the NFL with the Chiefs. They took a chance on this kid out of McGill. Turns out he could play with the big boys and his mind is at a different level. Who is that determined? You would think you have to dedicate your entire life to football if you're in the NFL. This guy dedicates a portion of his life to the NFL. I mean, he stays in shape, but he's such an intellect. I bet he outthinks his opponents. A doctor. Does any other job take this much training? I will argue no. I wouldn't bring this up if there was like a lawyer playing in the NFL or an accountant playing in the NFL, but a doctor, an actual doctor. He's done his residency and had enough skill and focus to still get a five-year contract last year for $140 million. He was featured on HBO Real Sports, still the best sports show, and they asked him, hey, as a doctor, somebody that knows all about CTE and how our brains function, are you a little worried? And he's like, no. I'm going to have fun now. Who knows how long he'll play? But then they said, are you worried about your hands? Because as a doctor, your hands, it's your equipment. It's your fine machinery. And he said, yeah, I guess that is a worry. But he's taking a risk. So incredibly impressive. What stood out to me about his story is when he was young, his parents took him out of school to sail down the East Coast. Left Canada, past New York, past Boston, past Miami, into the Caribbean, Or Caribbean, how do you pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? Both are acceptable, I assume, but Caribbean or Caribbean? And then he's like, yeah, my mom taught me math. My dad taught me English. Nothing against the schools. I love the value of what schools can do for you, but this guy was able to learn by living. They just took him out of school, and his parents taught him. And this is the type of mind that can become a doctor. Intellect is innate. And he combined that with a little bit of effort. This dude is unstoppable. It's one of the most impressive stories of a professional athlete. I'm not sure people know the name, but that would be cool if they put MD on his jersey. 
He's also furthering the misconception that offensive linemen are dumb. The big dummies. When I was covering the Chargers, the offensive linemen were some of the most insightful, engaging, smart interviews that we would have on the air. I always loved that, seeing these offensive linemen who are brilliant minds. There was a Ravens offensive lineman who was like so skilled as a mathematician, I think he made that his career. It just so happens that they know how to beat you up in the trenches as well. All right, here's the thing I want to get to today. The last thing. It's called an ode to Peter. A little tribute to a guy named Peter Ornstein, who I still plan to get on this podcast when I evolve into the world of interviews. I got sick a few days ago when I was supposed to have Josh Friday on, but you didn't ask. You know, I'm acting like you asked. You're listening to this. You're like, all right, just keep going. You know, we're not waiting for Josh to just kick in the door and start discussing the hardcore politics of Novato. We'll get to that. But let me talk about Peter Ornstein for a moment. Peter Ornstein has retired from the high school I teach at. So when I arrive on campus on August 20th, no Peter, no St. Peter. Peter is one of the most valuable humans I've come across and the most humble. So he would not agree with any of this as I go on and on with praise. But when I was first hired, you know, I was launching journalism, a program that had been dormant at this high school. And I had a vision to make it print and broadcast and maybe podcast one day. Who knows? They gave me a lot of freedom. At the time, one of the assistant principals said, make it print. Give us a school newspaper. So that's the focus. But who knows the future? Maybe it's broadcast. And they said, oh, yeah, there's a guy on this campus who used to be a CNN news director and producer, Peter. I'm guessing he's in his 60s, but he's an old school throwback, still wears a tie every day. You don't see a lot of male teachers wearing ties anymore. Actually, you'll even see some teachers wearing hoodies. Yep, times have changed. I still try to go with a little collar. But I guess when you get tenure, permanency, and you get comfortable, you see a lot of people just teaching and whatever they want to teach in. All right, teacher fashion aside, Peter wore a tie. Peter's pants were pressed. Peter wore a coat. Peter taught film. MSA, Marin School of the Arts film teacher, and then I think he was the director of MSA as well. He would probably get there at 6 a.m. and not leave until 6 p.m. and also work on the weekends. This is the type of work ethic that we all need if we're going to work in the world of education. If you're going to work in this world, you got to commit. You got to commit. And Peter was the most committed teacher I've seen. And he had a background in film. He went to USC film school. Very modest. He made a movie that was really good. I watched it. And he would probably say, yeah, it was okay. It was okay. Also one of the most informed guys, always reading something, such an eclectic taste in movies and books. As pleasant as a human gets. But here's my farewell to Peter. On the last day of school, it's finals. And with my journalism class, I had scheduled a simulation press conference, which means everybody come with your credential. Everybody write down a few questions. You're going to have a chance to interview the principal of the high school. An intimidating figure to some. Although, of course, not to teachers, but when you're 15, 16, 17, 18, a principal is just an intimidating figure, even if it's a nice guy. So these kids were getting ready to talk to the principal, preparing questions in a real press conference setting, meaning compete, get your question out there, you know, get as close to the podium as you can record the answer and then turn it into a story. You know, the story you want to write now get the quotes, fill it, give me a lead, give me a few quotes, give me a conclusion. This is their final exam. It's a big simulation project. It all sounded good. The principal agreed to do it. And then that morning, he texts me, I have the flu. I can't come in. So I am fucked. Totally screwed. But 
I thought to myself, I could ask the other principals, I could ask some other people, but let me just text Peter. Peter lives in Mill Valley. He wasn't even supposed to come in early. He said, no problem. So I told the kids last minute, all right, instead of the principal, how about the film teacher, Peter Ornstein? And then I said, oh yeah, he's also been a news director with CNN. He's been out overseas. He's covered wars. He's covered everything. And this guy is a true Renaissance man. And he arrives and I erase the principal's name and put in Peter's name onto the podium. And it was one of the most successful things that I've ever witnessed as a teacher. Every kid in my class asked a really good question really good. And Peter's answers were better than anything I could have expected. It was a real press conference. They were asking him about what it's like to cover these conflicts overseas and his thoughts on immigration and gun control and education. And he was answering everything so beautifully. He didn't ramble on and on and on so the kids couldn't get a good quote. He spoke succinctly. He spoke honestly, candidly, intelligently. He was engaging And it lasted about an hour, maybe over an hour. And every kid, some of them asked two questions. And it was a real press conference. And he saved me. If he said no, I have no clue what I would have done. Maybe we would have watched The Post. I haven't seen it yet. Isn't that what lazy teachers do? We're just going to show a movie today. Here's The Post. What'd you think? How was Tom Hanks? All right, have a good summer. But instead, the work that they put forth when they turned in their final projects, it was great. One of those uplifting feelings going into the summer. So here we go. I'm now excited for this upcoming school year as my journalists are about to put together something special. I just feel it. I feel it. It's a professional newspaper. Let me toot our horn. Let me douse these kids with some praise, huh? All right, I had a bunch of other things written down, and I don't truly know what direction I've gone in. It's an outer body experience. I do know that I have to embrace silence. I'm not just going to go listen to all the podcasts now, but if you made it this far, episode 28, I truly do thank you. Put a review up on iTunes if you want, if you have a chance. You can follow me on Twitter, por favor, at jrosenberg957. Yeah, let's discuss the books you're reading. What's a good summer book? I'm still on Anthony Bourdain right now. I have to Google every word. There are so many kitchen terms, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. And a lot of French terms, a lot of French food terms and cooking terms and cooking utensils and kitchen appliances that I've never heard of. So it's good. It's good. It's just a lot of work to read Bourdain, who's a true wordsmith. He's brilliant, actually. All right, episode 28 is in the books. I'll talk to you soon.